All right, church, today we're closing out our seven-week teaching series on Exodus. Uh, we're going to get to every middle school boy's favorite part, the crossing of the Red Sea. So if you have your Bibles, uh, or digital or physical, uh, go to Exodus 14. If you don't, we'll have it uh, on the screen. I do want to make a quick mention, like a family note, Wendy wanted me to mention. We do, we understand that uh, through the uh, the cold season, the winter time, more folks are choosing to wear masks. That's fine. We don't doesn't bother us either way, but we do have masks out before you enter the worship service. If you want one, you can grab one. Uh, we haven't changed our mask policy right now. Currently, it is wear one if you, if you want to, but we recognize that, and I just, as the leader, want to vocalize that. If you want to wear one, that's fine. There's no, that's, I'm probably going to be wear one. I got a Bengals one coming in, so I'm going to be proud to wear one for, we'll see what they do with the Steelers today. So Exodus 14, uh, Moses we, we have seen this guy grow up before our very eyes. He was abandoned, which wasn't maybe a fair word, uh, but he was abandoned by his mom because, you know, the Egyptians and Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh, I'm getting the Christmas story mixed up. <laughs> Pharaoh was killing Hebrew baby boys. And uh, worst case scenario, scenario, uh, scenario Pharaoh, uh, his daughter, picks him uh, Moses is out of the water, and then as a brutal slap in the face, asks Moses' mother to nurse him, to be the wet nurse, until Moses is viable and can eat on his own and all those things. And so Moses sort of grew up with this identity crisis. Am I a Hebrew? And I worship one God, Yahweh, and I practice you know, what we know now as Judaism? Or am I an Egyptian where I, where I worship tons of different gods, or doesn't even matter just so I can fit in. Welcome to what it's like to be a student in 2021, right? And then uh, he grows up, and we see what unresolved tension happens in our lives. So many times, I think, uh, in the Christian walk, we divorce salvation from emotions, and <clears throat> Moses gets really ticked because a fellow Hebrew is getting assaulted, and so he goes over to the Egyptian and murders him. And Moses goes, I need to run. Uh, Pharaoh is going to come after me. And he flees to another country, gets married, has a child, a boy, and best we could tell, finally comes or is starting to come to terms with his identity crisis when he names his son that represents feeling like, uh, feeling like someone that's in a foreign country, in a foreign land. He feels like a foreigner. A couple weeks ago, Jesus in the burning bush if, you, if that's confusing, you go back and listen to that sermon. Jesus calls Moses, you're my guy. Go back to Egypt. Bring my people out, and I, I will show them how powerful I am. Moses gives all these excuses, these insecurities, but eventually he does it. And today, we're at the crossing of the Red Sea, which I would argue is probably the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. The reason why, church, we preach Old and New Testament Bible, uh, books of the Bible, uh, is not for morality lessons. You don't need to be a Christian to have nice morals. Um, we preach the Old and New Testament because Jesus said, everything in the Bible testifies about me, okay? Some of it might be a little boring, but all of it is, is beneficial, even this old sacred text in the book of Exodus. And so we read Exodus not to be better people, but we read Exodus to be better followers of Jesus and to step into not morality, but his righteousness. Before uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, like a good leader, Moses gives his people a pep talk. And basically what he's going to say is, you're about to see something amazing. 
right? Uh, to use a football analogy, you're sitting in the stands. You're about to see the greatest play ever in NFL history, of which you have no part in it. And what Moses is talking about is the deliverance, the redemption, the salvation of the Israelites, and I'll get to it later in the sermon, the salvation of us as well. This is what he says in Exodus 14, 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. <laughs> There's a military coming for you. And your leader says, nah, don't be afraid. Uh, stand firm, which is a military term, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Big promise, Moses. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be productive, efficient, successful. Nope. You only need to be still. Okay, so there's an army coming with chariots and horses and who knows what kind of weapons, and we're supposed to just stand here and wait on the Lord to deliver us. Man, I don't know about you, but like, it's easy to preach this stuff. It's a lot harder to marry this, uh, this um, my theology with everyday practical living, being forced to trust that the gospel is going to come through even though it has, and I believed it, but will it come through again for me today? A couple of months ago, I did a, I don't remember the sermon, but I talked about how every police officer is given a book about the emotional life of a police officer they have to read when they join the force or maybe even before it. And basically what it talks about is this emotional graph of a police officer. And uh, police officers, when they put on the uniform and step out of the car and approach a vehicle, they can go from zero to 100 like that because you have no idea. Right? Is this person armed? Is this a stolen car? Are there drugs or alcohol in the car? Or is this just a nice person who wasn't paying attention on their phone and drove a little too fast? All of those options are on the table. And what is hard, what's difficult for police officers and medical professionals to do is they're up here all day, every day. It's hard for them to come down here in the middle section, the stasis of emotional healthy living. Now, what they do is often sometimes they're up here and then they crash. They're up here and they crash. That is also a reflection of our spiritual life. Now, imagine an army coming after you. Are you down here? No, you're probably up here. I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. The word fear in Hebrew, it's spelled Y-I-R-A-H. I don't know how to pronounce it, just being honest. But there's two meanings to it. There is fear, and then if we come off of this, like, I have to make everything happen now, 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 now. If we turn our life off and practice silence and solitude that Moses is commanding we do, the other side of fear is awe, worship, reverence, which allows us to live here in the middle of stasis, emotional, healthy, spiritual living. But so often we're up here all the time, aren't we? The answer is yes. The Israelites are right here. That makes sense. They're going to die. And God says, nope, be still. Come off of your high of what you think is going to happen and watch what I'm about to do in your life. Henry Nouwen says this about solitude. Solitude is the furnace of transformation. In solitude, I get rid of the scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make. The task is to persevere in my solitude. Listen to this. To stay in my cell until all of my seductive visitors get tired of pounding on my door and leave me alone. 
Who's pounding on your door inside your head these days? Right? I mean, let's be real. The holiday season isn't holly for a lot of us. Some of us, uh, it's the first holiday season without our loved one. Or it's another holiday season without <laughs> with a loved one that we don't really love. <laughs> What's going through an Israelite's mind when the enemy's gunning for him? What's knocking inside their head? These are the things, church, we wrestle with in the furnace of solitude, in the quietness, in the stillness of our own heart. Proverbs 29, 25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is kept safe. If you don't practice silence, solitude in your prayer life, you're going to be up here all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. Because you have fear of man issues. And when you have fear of man issues, right, you, um, you, like you run over people or you're, you're nice and you're too afraid to say no, people turn into big, scary, ugly, hairy beasts <laughs> that rule your life. And you can't remember the last time you felt like you could make a decision for yourself. But the Bible promises us if we come off of thinking we have to make everything happen to spend some time in solitude and prayer and silence, we're able to live here in the middle because our hope and our trust is in the Lord, not, not in people. In Psalm 23, 27, verse 3 through 4, David writes this, Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even though I will be confident, one thing I ask from the Lord. Notice, when you're a pastor, when you're a Jesus follower talking to people, you're going to get the problem of pain, right? God, God exists. Okay, Ben, but why do bad things happen? Notice what this guy asked for. One thing I asked from the Lord, this only do I seek. Here's what I'm, it, when the enemy's coming after me, when life is hard, when I'm suffering, here's what I want, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to what? To gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. Let's step back. That's a very Eastern Hebraic way to look at pain and suffering. When oftentimes, in my experience, myself and with others, that when bad stuff happens, what do we do? We ask why. And that's fine. That's fine. But you're not going to get all the answers this side of heaven. And then what do you do? <laughs> the writer says, the enemy is gunning for me. He doesn't ask for relief. He doesn't ask for answers. He doesn't ask for a military strategic plan. He asked to be in the presence of his God, that he might be in awe to worship his God. This is why Moses says, do not fear. If you live in fear, you're going to be up here all day, every day. And the writer of Psalm 27 says, God, bring me down here. Remind me of how beautiful you are. Remind me of your presence. Even if the world falls down and crumbles around me, I would rather be with you. That's something I learned this week, and God really impressed upon my heart. He's like, Ben, when's the last time you suffered or went through a difficult season, and you asked to be reminded of my beauty? Uh, never. Never. And this is what God's going to do in front of the Israelites in crossing the Red Sea. 
Uh, one, one Catholic cardinal said this, each of us needs an opportunity to be alone and silent, or even indeed to find a place in the day or in the week, just to reflect and to listen to the voice of God that speaks deep within us. In fact, our search for God is only our response to his search for us. He knocks. He knocks at our door. He says that in Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. But for many people, their lives are too preoccupied for them to be able to hear. We're up here all the time, church. We worship our schedules. In our culture, if we're busy, that means we're living a fulfilled life. Jesus never once said a meaningful life is a busy life. Uh, Eugene Peterson actually says to the opposite, a busy pastor is a lazy pastor. If you're constantly going, 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 when are you going to practice silence and solitude and be reminded of God's work in your life. And this is where we get to the gospel, the John 3, 16, I believe, of the Old Testament. Exodus 14, 15 through 31. I'm going to read the whole narrative in its entirety here. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory. This is why Moses tells God's people, sit down, be quiet, I'm going to blow your mind. This is about the glory of God. Salvation is about the glory of God. It has nothing to do with you or how awesome your mom said you were when you were three, that you could do whatever you wanted when you grew up. This has everything to do about the person and the work of Jesus. After salvation, and after salvation, Jesus and only Jesus could get all of the credit. Verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, of the cloud, throughout the, night the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went, so neither went near... Uh, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. <clears throat> and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on the ground with a wall of water on the right and the left. <laughs> I'd be freaking out right now. The Egyptians pursued them and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillow of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels, which would have been the reeds uh, in, the, in, in, in the river. It should be called um, the, the Sea of the Reeds, not, not, not the Dead Sea, of the chariots, the Red Sea, so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, check this out, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Don't, don't blow. Here's a group of people that believe in many gods. And in particular, this is for free because you're here today. What they just admitted is that the Egyptian Ra, the sun god, who would have power over this situation, has now been defeated by Yahweh. And for the first time, their arrogance is shattered into humility. And they're like, we have to get out of here 
Yahweh is coming for us. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, or the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites, the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared. There's that worship, that fear turning into reverence and worship. They finally calmed down long enough, right? People feared the Lord and put their trust so now they're, now, now they're leaving their fear of man issues or their fear of Pharaoh issues and slavery. They put their trust in him and in Moses, his servants. This is the gospel in Exodus 14. If you were, uh, <laughs> oh man, if you were having a cookout in your backyard and you saw this whole thing go down, A, you would go viral if you put it on social media. Uh, and, and the Israelites, the Hebrews were walking past your house and you go, what, what, what is <laughs> Who are you guys? What just happened? Here's what one Old Testament professor would say. If you asked a Hebrew who had just crossed uh, over the Red Sea and they're heading to Canaan, this is what they would say. This is their answer. Well, I was, a f- I was in a foreign land and I was under the, sen- the sentence of death and bondage. But I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. Remember that plague? My mediator let us out and we crossed over. Now, we're on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. But God has given us his law to help us live in community and the tabernacle because now we live by grace. Now, his presence is in our midst, and he's going to stay with us until we get home. Uh, That sounds like a Christian because that's the beauty of the gospel. I was under the wrath of God. I am a sinner, but I took shelter under the blood of Christ. I accepted a message that a pastor was given. I told everybody that I believed Jesus. I wanted to follow him. I repented of my sin. My dad baptized me May of uh, 1992. I was 10 years old on a baptism Sunday, they called it. And then he gave me his word so I could actually know who Jesus actually is. And he gave me a group of people and youth leaders and adult leaders and and, and over time churches that I interned at and worked at and elders that I worked with and, and a body of believers and the Holy Spirit, even though we're not yet to the promised land, is with us. Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to give you my paraclete. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. Paraclete means someone who comes around you, like, like a perimeter of a basketball court. And he's going to walk alongside you until you get to heaven. This is a beautiful picture of what God does with a sinner when he or she becomes a Christian. Now, let me give you three things uh, that you need to think about and process, and probably, that sounded aggressive, I want for you, you're invited into, uh, to practice this week. In my stillness, I'm reminded of my need for rescue. Now, some people get freaked out when I say, 
Christians need to practice silence and solitude. Like, I'm not talking about, like, Eastern mysticism meditation. What I'm talking about is being quiet long enough so that you can hear from the Lord. My men's group meets every Tuesday, and before I even pray or before we even start our group, I tell them to take two. And that just simply means that's code for let's be still and let's be quiet for two minutes, focus on our breathing, calm down, get rid of whatever responsibilities we have for the day, and just be in the moment. Here's something for free that I didn't tell the first service. If you don't know how to be with God in silence and solitude, if you're not practicing it, you're not going to know how to be with other people. Like, you're going to take manipulators at their word as if they're being honest. And you're going you're gonna to have fear of man issues. It is so imperative, church, that we know and practice. Like, we practice silence and solitude in our prayer. We practice and value being in the presence of the Lord so that we can be fully present with others. So the silence and the stillness begins with this understanding that I am a sinner. Like, I need to be rescued, right? Like, I'm a professional Christian. They pay me to be here. I'm still wicked. Jesus calls people like me, the Pharisees, uh, whitewashed tombs. I look good on the outside. I'm not bragging. But I'm filthy inside. Just because I stand on a stage and, and know some stuff about the Bible doesn't mean I'm in love with Jesus. <laughs> doesn't mean I, I am practicing silence and stillness in my prayer time. Rest assured, I am, church, but it doesn't mean that I actually am. What's happening here is um, what theologians call uh, redemption, that Jesus is our redemption. And what it means to be redeemed is also married with this idea of ransom, that, that, that we are under the law of sin, right? Satan has, a, the enemy has a hold on us. And our heavenly father needs payment to get us back. Now, when you read the New Testament, sin is also talked about in terms of like economics, that we are indebted to someone, where we are indebted to God. And so what redemption simply means is that Jesus sends his son, his mediator, which we'll talk about later, who's greater than Moses, not to part waters, but to die on a cross. And should we take shelter under the blood of the lamb, we too will be saved. First Peter 1, 18 through 19 says this, For we know that it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you are redeemed from an empty way of life, down to, uh, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Some of you know, some of you know, this is the most heartbreaking conversations I had when I was a student pastor for 10 years. Some of you know what it's like to be the only Christian in your family. Now, I'm not talking about someone that just shows up to church because it's Sunday. I'm talking about you're actually trying to follow Jesus in a living room of people that think Jesus and Christianity and religion as a whole is a joke. Peter is telling us that every family has a way of approaching life. That's why they're sociologists, right? Every family has approached life. Every family has a theology or a philosophy or a way of doing life. And Peter says, some of you have come from families that have really hollow ways and empty ways of looking at life. Now, when, when you think of the word empty, you need to think of um, uh, big Easter eggs, big chocolate Easter eggs. You get really excited, right? You crack that sucker open, nothing's inside, Right? 
That's what false teaching is. That's what any other, any other teaching other than the teachings of Jesus, i.e. the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels, that's what that is. Jesus said there's three kinds of life you can have. It's up to you. You can have quantity of life, you can have quality of life, and you can also have eternal life. Jesus says, regardless of the family you grew up in or your life circumstance now, you don't have to live by a cultural, empty way of looking at life. Jesus actually, Peter actually has the audacity to say that there's a very meaningful way to live. And the very meaningful way to live is is to be a follower of Jesus. And the way you become a follower of Jesus is to put your trust in him and to place your life under the blood of the Lamb, like the Israelites in crossing the Red Sea. WGT Shedd says this, sin is a suicidal action of the human will. Here's what I think he means by that. If we are not practicing silence and solitude, and we are not first beginning with this awareness that I am broken, that I am sinful, that at times I can be a jerk to my wife, at times I cannot be a very nice person and or a good friend. We will have a tendency <laughs> to keep living in our sin, both like physical actions. We tend to think about sin as sort of like, like an action, which it is. But we will also live in the, the power of our sin, which is another way to say this, of, of our brokenness. Does that make sense? And your families are broken. You, you know that. You know that. And what he's saying is, the more I step into my sin, or the more I step into my brokenness, and I don't become a Christian, and I don't get help thinking through it, and I don't practice silence and solitude, I am twice as likely to continue sinning. I am twice as likely to continue to live in my brokenness. Let me tell you something. There's some really good Jesus followers that have been to church for a really long time that are, that are uh, sinners saved by grace. They're going to die and go to heaven, but they are completely broken. Does that make sense? They're completely broken because they will not, they will not take the invitation to do the deep work of the heart of what the Holy Spirit is meant to do in our lives. And so if I continue sinning, if I continue my brokenness, I am more likely to continue down that road and less likely to go to Jesus, right? It's like a shot of heroin or any addiction, right? The more I do it, the less likely, I'm, I'm, I'm li- the less likely I am to live a clean, healthy life. I'm going to go back to the thing that I think is going to give me comfort. I think is going to give me <clears throat> a meaningful life. And, and Peter just said, and I believe he's telling the truth, it's not meaningful, it's empty, it's empty. We need to be reminded that we need to be rescued. Whether you just became a Christian or you've been following Jesus for 20 years, seasons change. Life throws curveballs. We need to be reminded that we need to be rescued. Secondly, in my stillness, I'm reminded that God's grace will get me through. Romans 6.14, Paul writes one of my favorite verses, For sin shall no longer be my master, because you're not under the law, you're under grace. Some of you, um, when stepping into uh, the Red Sea and you see the walls on the sides of you, some of you would probably pass through this way. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Oh my God. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Boom. You just bolt through it, right? That's understandable. Some of you, um, 
<clears throat> are going to stand in the middle, right? Because you're from New Hampshire. Live free or die. You do what you want. And you're going to look at the water. You're like, man, look, look how amazing God is. Look, look at those Egyptians. <laughs> I have no idea what's about to happen to them. Whether you find yourself running through the waters, thinking I'm going to die, I'm going to die, or whether you're um, standing there marveling at God's grace, here's what I want you to know about this moment for the Israelites and about you and your salvation. It is not about the quality of your faith that saves you. You see, the waters are representative of the Old Testament as chaos and judgment, i.e. creation of the world, i.e. Noah and the flood. But the separation is a picture of God's grace. And so though I know it might look bad for the Israelites, and though I know it might look bad for you in your life and whatever is going on, whether you decide to run through it, whether you decide to sit there and take selfies with your friends, or whether you decide to sit there and marvel at it, how you walk through grace is not dependent on the quality of your salvation or the quality of your faith but the object of your faith. Jesus, church, listen to this. This separates Christianity from all other religions and helps you get a good night's sleep. Jesus is the object of our faith. And you see this all the time, right? Like someone gets a medical diagnosis and they're like, man, I wish I had more faith. Or, you know, your kid's a hellion and why can't they just listen? I wish I had a little more faith, right? And you, you, Jesus is Jesus. He's a human that lived in time, in history. Like, what are you talking about, more faith? You, you want to clone him? No, you can't have more faith. What you can do is be silent and still and ask for the more of Jesus and his presence and his wonder and his awe. Religion wants you to build a bridge, <laughs> brick by brick, trestle by trestle, from you to God. Christianity is not about building a bridge. It's an immediate transference of position, right? The New Testament would say, I once was this, now I'm this. I, uh, First John, I was, uh, lived in darkness, now I live in light. I was once a sinner, now I'm saved. I was once under the law, now I'm under grace. Does this make sense? And it's instantaneously. Now, here's why you keep sinning after you become saved. You can take the person out of slavery or the person out of sin and bondage. It's a lot harder to take sin and bondage out of the person. In other words, even though they cross the Red Sea and they're heading towards Canaan, there's still tendencies to want to go back. There's still tendencies to want to go back to their old way of living. You can take someone out of slavery. It's a whole other conversation to take slavery out of that person. It's a mindset. And what God is doing with the Israelites and what God does with our salvation, what he's telling us is when you become a Christian, it's an instant transfer of status from under the wrath of God to justified by his grace. And it's a lifelong process to grow through it. And though you, you might be walking through the Red Sea thinking like, oh my gosh, God might even kill me now. But, but what, what I want you to see is when they're walking through the Red Sea, they are walking and living in God's grace. And some of them are still freaked out. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Ah! And some of them are like, wow, he did it. God delivered us. We need to be silent. We need to be 
still so that we can be reminded that God's grace is going to get us through. And lastly, we need to practice silence and stillness because in my stillness, I'm reminded that my mediator fights for me. Moses is a good dude, but he's not Jesus, right? Moses identified with a group of people, right? He identified with the Hebrews, the Israelites. Moses decided to be their leader and could understand where they're coming from. And Jesus, we're celebrating right now, well, next week in theory, Christmas, right? Who left heaven to become one of us. And as the message says in uh, the gospel of John chapter one, moved into the neighborhood. Jesus is the only God that stories can be told of him, like the woman with the bleeding problem would reach out and grab Jesus. And Jesus goes, who touched me? And Peter goes, Jesus, dude, it's Black Friday. We're at the mall. Everyone's touching you. Jesus is the only God that we can get so close to him that we can bump into him. Now, Moses can participate in this salvation experience. He can raise his hands as well. I could preach the gospel to you right now, and I'm hoping if you have not received it, you're thinking about receiving it, but I can't save you. That's not my job, but Jesus can. Jesus does more than raise his hands and parts the water. He goes to the cross and dies the death that you should have died. He goes to the cross having lived the perfect life that you're so freaked out about. Am I good enough? Am I good enough? No, that's good news. And he walks away from a, this is so cool, a rich man's tomb that he borrowed. Did not need it that long. He borrowed his own coffin so that we might come to know that the way out of sin and bondage is to say, I was under the wrath of God, but I chose to put my life under the blood of the Lamb. And he gave me his word to lead me and guide me. And he gave me a group of people at Rockingham Christian Church and a spirit to lead and guide us. Though we're not there yet, he's still walking with us. This is the message of Exodus. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much for the gospel and the crevices of these Old Testament books that so often we ignore, we don't want to read, maybe we think are boring, but are so beautiful, and we need to read them and come to a new understanding, a new beauty, afresh. Remind us, Lord, that you are our deliverer, and we need to practice stillness and silence. So often, we'd rather do the fighting, we'd rather do the producing, we'd rather make it happen. All the while, we live at a pace so high that we're so afraid, we make high-risk decisions, that we never come off of the high of being productive and being busy. Lord, for the Christians in the room, would you remind us that you invite us to go at the pace of your spirit and not our own ambition. For the non-Christians in the room, Lord, may you prick their hearts as an invitation to invitation to receive you, Jesus, to place their life under the blood of the Lamb, to begin opening your word to learn more about Jesus, and to step into community at RCC as we walk this journey together until we all get to the promised land. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.